you know when you look back after a number of years at mvp i guess it's it's similar with every every product that has survived kind of on the market and has actually continues to live it's like you look at your mvp and you're like how was this even how was it even possible that anybody found this interesting the the type of a tool that semaphore is is generally supposed to support every way of building software right but you know we just said we have no idea how to do that we don't have time so let's just support what we were working with which is ruby and rails web applications i'm marco anastasov co-founder of semaphore This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today how Marco Anastasov built a better way to build, test, and integrate your code. All this and more on Code Story. Marco Anastasov has been working with computers for a long time. He grew up in former Yugoslavia in the 90s, when there was civil war, hyperinflation, and the economy was taken back 20 years. His father was an electronics guy, so there was always a computer around the house. He found himself fascinated with information and the things you could conjure up on the magic screens. And he found that computers were a place you could build things that were not influenced by the outside world. As a kid, he played sports, mainly volleyball. He's taken many lessons from his time playing volleyball, where a group of people have a shared sense of purpose driving towards a goal. While building applications under the guise of his web development agency, Render Text, he and his fellow builders saw a need to have a way of automating the processes of building, testing, and integrating, and doing so fast. This is the creation story of Semaphore. Semaphore is a cloud-based product for technology companies. So our customers are software development teams. And Semaphore helps them automate the processes of testing and deploying code. That's kind of a big deal these days because, you know, software is built collaboratively. You know, the problem that people need to solve is how, how do you build software together? You know, multiple people adding new code to applications, how do we make sure that it's everything's actually working, right? So that's why in modern software development, you know, there is an emerging practice of, you know, automating various phases of um, testing and delivering basically applications to end users and customers. So we help them do that productively because our product is taking care of that whole aspect of build, building software for them. Prior to creating Semaphore, we were a small web development consultancy. Our company was called RenderText. Uh, it's still called like that, but Semaphore is what more more known now in the world. In our practice of basically building applications for clients, typically like small startups, you know, we basically saw a need to um, have a have a way of you know automating these processes of testing and integrating software together. Back then it was like there were already emerging products. So this was around 2010, 2011. 
you know, for example, GitHub was already established as a as a major uh, major improvement for software development online. On the other hand, you already had like easy, convenient platforms for deploying code, such as Heroku. But there was nothing that really helped developers, you know, build and test their code really fast with a similar user experience. So, you know, the state of the art was uh, installing an open source piece of software called Jenkins on a server, which you, the developer, have to buy and maintain and scale and, you know, figure out how to upgrade process works. So, long story short, it took me three days to set up one project that we were working on this, uh, you know, this way. And, you know, we just thought, like, there has to be a better way to do this, and we didn't find anything uh, out there. And you know, because we were all also on the lookout to eventually become a product company, we decided to try to you know build something that's hopefully simple and fast initially, just for our needs, and see if you know the rest of the world will find it useful. And fortunately, they they did. Well, tell me about the MVP. So tell me about that first product you built, how long it took you to build, and, and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life. Our technology stack was mainly using uh, the Ruby prog programming language and Ruby and Rails uh, web development framework. That was kind of the foundation. Um, another thing was the fact that, you know, GitHub, um, kudos to them, had a pretty comprehensive and open API, which we could rely on to, um, you know, get notified whenever, you know, something changes in the source code. That was basically it. Ruby on Rails, uh, I guess we used, I don't know if Bootstrap was around for, you know, the CSS framework. And that's it. Like the important kind of component in, in this thing that Semaphore does, which is in development circles known as uh, continuous integration. Today, you might also call it CICD, which is short for continuous integration and continuous delivery. You know, you have to have usually a beefy machine where you execute the code, execute the tests. And so we're also figuring out how the user interface, which we were uh, building, was orchestrating these basically jobs of, of executing other people's code. That was kind of the, the other other component. And we, uh, we decided because, you know, we're big fans of like speed and not waiting for stuff. So one of the early decisions was that Samfire has to be very fast uh, and give you feedback very quickly, like as soon as possible. So we decided to kind of go against the trend of, you know, doing everything with cloud computing and actually run our users' workflows on um, bare metal hardware. So this is one of the one of the you know reason one well the basically the primary reason why Semaphore has always been kind of the fastest product in the space. But for that you know you just kind of had to pick initially a provider to help you with that and and move on. So I guess the general advice is you know Ruby on Rails was extremely helpful and that culture of kind of getting things done and not overcomplicating things. With any MVP, you have to make certain decisions and trade-offs, right? You gotta cut a feature, or you gotta accept technical debt. Tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs that you had to make, and how you cope with those decisions. 
you know, when you look back after a number of years at MVP, I guess it's it's similar with every every product that has survived kind of on the market and is actually li- continues to live. It, it's like you look at your MVP and you're like, how was this even? How was it even possible that anybody found this interesting? Because it it was really stripped down. So you know, Semaphore, the the type of a tool that Semaphore is is generally supposed to let's say support in theory every programming language and every operating system and every way of building software right but you know we just said we have no idea how to do that we don't have time so let's just you know support what we were you know working with and what also happened to be pretty popular in the world at that time to a large extent it still is which is you know ruby and rails web applications our kind of mission for the mvp was that it should just work so it should take you like maybe five clicks to set up a working continuous testing process for a ruby on rails applications and that's it so from that point right you got your mvp and you start to progress the product right you start to mature it how did you go about that process and how did you build your roadmap and decide okay this is the next most important thing to build kind of remember there are immediately um, many potential areas we could go to and, and branch into. Generally, Semaphore is a type of application or a system which is a little maybe more complex than a typical kind of software as a service web app where there's a web application with a user interface and some workflows and uh, you know a database we had we kind of had all that in our mvp but we also had this pool of actual machines where we were supposed to be running our customers source code and which and every customer has a different applications with different requirements different dependencies that system where that stuff runs is you know it's supposed to be <laughs> very you know highly available and reliable i guess that in the beginning we were already kind of balancing improving the overall user experience of the application so for example in the mvp just to you know to give a concrete example um i remember that when you would run something on semaphore you saw no output about what was happening it was like we're running some stuff for you a spinner was going around and like hang tight we're gonna let you know when it's done it was like it was okay for the you know MVP, but it had to kind of evolve and actually show some output to people and so on. So, while on the other hand, actually our backend system where we were actually executing stuff for our users was everything but <laughs> stable and and uh, rock solid. So we were actually manually kind of behind the scenes watching almost every workflow that was running and manually restarting servers and just kind of keeping the the system up and running uh, with bare hands and duct tape. There was just work to, you know, make it better than that eventually. On the on the kind of bigger time horizon, you know, Semaphore has evolved to support, you know, other, you know, other programming languages. Nowadays, we also support macOS and have Windows on the roadmap. We basically invested 10 years in in the dark dark magic of making the system highly reliable and available so that for our users it's it's really rock solid experience but generally navigating that lar- large space of potential things to work on is is, is always a challenge 
one kind of systematic decision that we made early on was to operate as a bootstrapped company so to be completely funded by you know basically our customers and what we can do based on that so that meant that we you know we could not you know immediately like blitz scale and, and hire um, solve problem by just adding people and adding adding people kind of had to be frugal and work with people who are who are like-minded in the sense that they just like the working on this problem space and on this application I guess almost every job application nowadays uh, says that you know we're looking for a self-managed person and stuff like that but that was that that's really one of the kind of core you know core requirements for us because we just you know didn't for a long time we we basically had no managers just you know people making stuff together let's switch to team so how did you go about building your team and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you so when we started semaphore we were you know just for context like we were you know pretty young and although we we operated a small agency for a few years. This was literally our first years of just professional experience. So um, I'm sure that we made, you know, despite best intentions, a lot of kind of uh, mistakes or didn't maybe didn't do some things quickly enough in in terms of kind of structuring the team or, or realizing what what are the bottlenecks and what is the right kind of role to uh, expand with next and so on. So. I guess as the as the organization evolves, you're always um, looking for you know you're always trying to um, level up the whole organization, including yourself. As a leader of the company, you have all the context of what was what was kind of happening before, how things were done before, and it's kind of your job to uh, figure out what is always be, always know kind of what's the next level in every department in every kind of type of work that the organization needs to do so the ideal scenario is when you basically go for like in our case we went from none of us really knew what what we were doing but you know we we made something that was useful and we were just kind of learning from primarily you know user feedback and iterating on that to actually having having a clue how how a proper product company should be structured and what are some skill sets across departments that you know you're supposed to have in place in order to actually deliver the right set of values to to your customers from you know customer support to to product it's a million small iterations all over the years as you you know as you grew as you have grown did the criteria change and what you looked for in people or how you protected that you know creative team culture kind of as i was saying before we really did not build for scale in the early days like in the sense that for the product of our type you always have to do some capacity planning so even when we were launching and there was nobody else but us using like on day one yeah and slowly you kind of start getting people in we always had to make sure that we have you know some additional capacity from whatever it was the user base at you know the given point in time two weeks from launch if we had 20 people using semaphore we kind of had to make sure that the system is ready for 50 you know and just went you know step by step in in that kind of spirit I think we were fortunate uh, to never really had idle time in the sense like when we launched MVP 
and because we were you know obviously part of the developer community at least in the ruby and rails space so we knew kind of where people hung out and what are you know relevant channels and newsletters and so on so we were able to spread the word pretty pretty quickly and we got you know the initial set of users you know pretty much as soon as we launched you know we were always driven by you know whatever needs they had or whatever problems they were you know running into we just didn't have time to kind of daydream about some scale that was too far ahead and we were just kind of building for one step ahead of, of today let's flip to scalability so did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or were you fighting this as you grew I mean, today with 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 all the you know cloud computing power at your fingertips, I think the conversation is is different from like maybe mid two thousands where you know there's there's this website maybe it's still around called High Scalability or something like that, and it was like they would publish these articles that were pretty elaborate, like this is how Flickr is managing you know whatever five terabytes of photos. And it was like, because there were just a couple of websites on the, in the world who <laughs> operated at a relatively large scale, it was like fascinating to read. And because there was like actually no cloud computing, um, it was a story of people building their actual data centers and, you know, working on both hardware and software. But, you know, if you fast forward today, like there's so much software has been created that you know from from load balancers to api gateways and so on which you can just you know use and which didn't exist before and that's on top of you know cloud computing so i think scale is even maybe uh, shouldn't really be a topic like for for most people getting started today well as you step out on the balcony and you look across all you've built with semaphore what are you most proud of I'm always like the most excited when when I hear about basically, you know, as simple as it sounds like that there's a new company and it doesn't have to be kind of famous or anything, just that somehow I have a have an image in my head like what they are and what they do and and it's somehow, you know, I, I get that through whatever way whether it's a notification or a support uh, request or something or somebody wrote a nice tweet and just knowing that product that we've created is helping real people out there do great things at their jobs and because at its core you know semaphore is kind of like a productivity tool but for developers and knowing that you know we we made created something which helps you know thousands of developers across the globe build useful things uh, a little bit better than they used to before using semaphore it just makes me immensely proud well, let's flip the script a little bit, Marco. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Yeah, so I'll tell you a story which is maybe can be a showcase of two types of things that I would avoid. One is um, a tiny company partnering with a very large company, or at least um, it's, it's how it's pitched. And another is investing in developing uh, basically a feature of your product, which is something completely foreign to how everything else works. You know, not was not really part of the plan. So there was a time when we were basically approached by a very large company to engage in a, like they would they would call it a partnership, 
which required us to build a new feature, which for us was a pretty large feature. Like we had to uh, invest significant time and effort into it. And the promise was that we would be, you know, featured by that large company as a partner and we would be a part of a new marketplace that the company was launching. And so, you know, it seemed like a great idea. The company was, you know, um, highly popular back then, uh, seemed to be on a, you know, everything was kind of going up and up with them. And, you know, internally, like we had some things going on and obviously development in progress, but, you know, because this seemed like a great opportunity, we took some people off the projects they were working on. And basically they, we did, you know, eventually implement this thing, which was, completely kind of not really integrated in the whole story of Semaphore uh, as it was back then. It ended up that, you know, this marketplace has completely flopped because the big company has changed its priorities like over the course of maybe two months or three months. Effectively, like, you know, some of our plans were taken maybe six months on hold and we invested a lot of time into building something that was not really useful. There was no really market for that at the moment. And, you know, even before we launched that, like the person who was kind of leading this partnership project was left that big company. And it kind of taught us a few lessons. Like one is don't build things that are like breaking the wholeness of your product. This is a whole other thing, but I learned a lot from um, Christopher Alexander, who's, a, who's an architect and talks a lot about why some things feel good or look good and kind of feel like they have life and some others don't. The concepts of wholeness and are part of that, but basically it means that, you know, there was there was like a new branch which was completely going in another, another direction, not very developed. We spent a lot of time, uh, we were basically ghosted by this large company because as a tiny company, you're just nothing to them really. So it's, it's a lesson of focus and kind of staying on your track, I guess. Well, what does the future look like for Semaphore, for the product and for your team? Semaphore has recently gone through a major uh, transition since, you know, there was a, there were a couple of years when we had Semaphore, which we now call Semaphore Classic, and kind of in late 2018, we, you know, driven by, in large part, you know, customer feedback, generally changes in the development, developer tools industry, we cha changed the course a little bit and built a whole new product, which initially we called Semaphore 2.0, mainly to basically escape the dead end that the previous Semaphore was, because there were many types of applications and workflows that the product, the way it was designed, was just not capable of running. Because we wanted to grow with our customers and not, you know, have every single one of them tell us, look guys, we outgrew you. And so, you know, we, don't, we cannot really use Semaphore anymore. We wanted to build something that is still, you know, really fast and simple to use, hopefully, but something that, you know, no organization can really uh, outgrow. And the future for us means um, continuing down that path of expanding the um, scope of types of workflows that we can run for developers. We've just launched support for monorepos, which is like when you have multiple projects in one Git repository. 
something that's emerged as a trend because of one hand microservices, on the other hand, like a lot of advancement in the front end. On the other, we kind of want to explore further what a CI CD tool like Semaphore can do in terms of you know, providing insights and feedback to developers beyond, hey, your tests have passed or your tests have failed. So giving people uh, tips on what makes their code faster or slower, or, you know, when, what are the moments when your the quality of your code is potentially decreasing and uh, overall just giving you a sense of how, uh, how productive is your overall software development process in, in your team. Let's switch to you, Marco. Who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, CTO, architect, really really any person or lots of people. Name a person you look up to and why. I, I specifically remember back, like at a point before even Semaphore existed or even the idea, I think, there was a conference um, dedicated to basically motivating developers and maybe to some extent also designers to build their own products and build businesses around them and run them as independent businesses, you know, without the requests and constraints of venture capital and so on. So it was like, it was a place where people from companies like GitHub, the GitHub CEO from, from back then was there speaking, the Shopify CEO. And it was incredibly inspiring because they just kind of spoke just like regular people, like, you know, hey, we... We're builders, you're basically the message was like, you know, if you figure out something that's useful to others, just build it and you don't need to rule the world with that. You just need, you know, even a hundred people who are passionate about it. And you have independence, you have a you have a meaning, you have something to to, you know, hold on to and, and build upon. So that kind of ethos and and uh, was was highly influential and it kinda stayed with me over the years. I'll say despite, you know, the recent controversies, but, you know, the Basecamp folks have been really influential as well, because back then kind of, you know, um, there was a, many things seemed more complicated than they, they could have been. And the approach of kind of just focusing on simplicity and uh, in every aspect of building the product or structuring your organization seemed like a breath of fresh air. So mentioned a bit earlier, Christopher Alexander, who is uh, actually an architect, I remember, you know, reading many programming books over the years, which referenced his work, uh, which would always be like, oh, he was the guy who came up with the idea of patterns, like patterns in architecture, and that inspired the idea of basically patterns in software development. I actually read not not his work about patterns, but about, um, I don't know, on top of my head, like there's one called um, The Phenomenon of Life. Um, which was highly influential because it kind of explained to me why some things feel good, like in the actually um, external physical world. And for example, you would see like a house from maybe built in late 19th century, somewhere, wherever. And you would just feel like, oh, this is such a nice thing, you know? And then you would see this maybe like some kind of a brutalist building with just flat walls and like white and gray, or it would be like in a weird shape, like with, uh, you know, sharp angles and stuff. And although it's interesting, it's kind of like, you don't feel anything when you see it, like if you like just realize it. So there's actually logic, like why this is happening. 
you know, he, he, he basically created a theory which decomposes this in the, in the world of buildings and interior space. But I think it kind of applies, applies in, in software development as, as well. So the way, the way I think of it is like, let's say you're, you're, you built a product that's like MVP doing one feature. Basically, it's like one feature. Maybe to, to use a concrete example, maybe it's like a calendar to book meetings or podcast appearances. And it's like, you have that feature that it works great. There's maybe 10% of things you could add. And then there's like, okay, how do you, how does the product further evolve? You could, you could add something that really complements the original feature and in a way makes it even more useful than it was. So for example, you could build in a way for people to leave you a tip or pay you. So th this way the tool suddenly becomes like something that professionals can can use alone as a way of you know providing professional consulting services right um, or you could say no you know it's actually what's really interesting is let's build um, event management system on top of that and then you're like these things are not like they kind of related but not very much and you end up with two things that are probably going to be underdeveloped not very cohesive and when you add a couple of those in your product, you just basically end up in a really bad place because things stop making sense um, and nothing, nothing feels like the whole product doesn't feel like a, like a whole. It's, it's, in my experience, it's really easy to add things that maybe make sense, but that don't really complement each other as much as they could. That's, kind of naturally leads to under under development and just a lot of depth that uh, inhibits your uh, potential down the road so this is this has been literally like one of the ideas that changed how i see the world well, we talked about mistakes but a little bit different spin if you could go back to the beginning what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach when you have the constraints of a bootstrap company you don't really have all the luxury of, you know, hiring somebody as soon as there is a need for to get some 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 job done, right? Because you have to operate within, you know, profitability. So in practice, that ends up meaning that probably the founder or the founders will wear really many hats and also early employees. While that's necessary, it's also necessary to be very proactive in basically protecting the company in a way from having certain functions, you know, kind of taken by somebody, whoever that is, who cannot dedicate themselves 100% to that function. Being aware of, as simple as it sounds like, being aware of what functions your company has to have and being aware of where do you actually, where do you have somebody who's really dedicated to that function and where do you just kind of have somebody filling in just to kind of hold water, knowing the difference between that and working to improve. There, there were cases where I kind of wished like we realized it sooner. I think there's a lot of like, maybe glorification is not the right word, but in the world of kind of startups, I guess, there is the, the typical story is somehow that, you know, people just kind of figure out everything on their own. And there's actually very little structured learning about how to maybe just run a business or, you know, build a product or overall structure responsibilities or scale the team and so on. So. 
in my personal case, I wish that I um, I maybe spent less time reading uh, fragmented, you know, and highly contextual um, advice from random blogs on the internet, and just maybe picked one or two books that kind of gave a framework of how to how to structure how to run a company and just you know go with that. For example, I think the, the there's a book called uh, Scaling Up which can be really useful to, regardless of kind of the size of your company or, or your, your business. There's a lot of kind of good advice uh, there that uh, everybody can find. Well, last question, Marco. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there in the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? My advice would be to never lose focus from customers from your customers basically there is a tremendous amount of distractions that the world is going to present to you both internally in the company and externally but if you are truly kind of focused on your customer and understanding them and because you've already built some build that thing you're already creative person you've proven that so you will be able to figure out further innovations based on the needs that you will understand from your customers but it's very important that you think about your customers basically every day and not get distracted by anything else that's great advice well marco thank you for being on the show today thank you for telling the creation story of semaphore Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I hope some entrepreneurs out there will find something that they can apply in their lives. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.